Welcome to the How We Teach podcast, where educators come together to talk about, well, how we teach. I'm your host, Amanda Watson. If the pandemic has taught us anything about how we teach, it's that we can't possibly cover all the subject content in a short amount of time, at least not how we used to, and not without a pile of stress. And I can only imagine the student experience in these conditions must be something like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hose when we try to cram too much content at them in a short amount of time. And even when we do get through all the units and all the pages, students will still need time to consolidate their learning, to make connections and to delve deeply into the learning so that they can retain what they need. We've all witnessed the frustration of trying to get this done in a five-week octomester or even a 10-week quadmester. We're also starting to uncover the research that suggests we need to slow down to create deep and meaningful learning so that students can master the core concepts of any discipline at any time. But slowing down can feel uncomfortable and letting go of the standard content, even just a little bit, can almost feel reckless. In other episodes, we've talked about how the structure of lesson delivery is changing away from the sage on the stage, and away from a one-size-fits-all approach. And now that they have the internet on computers, as Mr. Simpson astutely observed, information is accessible 24-7. Teachers can still be subject experts without being content police. This sets the stage for a collaborative learning partnership and puts the teacher in the role of a tourist guide, a leader who shows the group the main curriculum landmarks gives feedback, asks and answers questions, but also shares the helm of the ship with students as they navigate the waters between curriculum and self-differentiation. Continuing with the theme of this podcast, the journey then becomes not what we teach, but how we teach. guests today are both educators with the Kawartha Pine Ridge District School Board. Stuart Ross is a science teacher and the literacy lead for his school, and Lori McCluskey is a central literacy coordinator for all secondary schools in the board. Welcome, Stu and Lori. Can you tell us a bit about your educational journeys? Um, thanks for having uh, me on the podcast. Um, this is this is exciting. Um, I guess. Uh, my educational journey started, um, and I just did the math in my head, 15 years ago, 2007 wow. <laughs> is when I started with the Court of Piners District School Board. Um, I taught on the lakeshore in Bowmanville for most of that. I've been at Adam Scott Collegiate Vocational Institute now for about six or seven years. And um, yeah, it's just been a, a journey of wrestling with teaching teaching in a way that makes it relevant for the students and not, you know, uh, this, this idea of trying to get through curriculum all the time. And then, you know, the major catalyst that got to, got me to where I am now uh, was a couple years ago when we were struggling with the idea of getting through the chemistry unit after five snow days in a row. <laughs> and we thought, Hey, let's try teaching thematically. And here we are. And now I'm a literacy lead as a science teacher, which is also weird. 
<laughs> so, well, it's exciting and it's it's cool. And I just have to ask you, did you have more snow days when you taught down on the Lakeshore School or more snow days up in Adam, Adam Scott? Uh, no, the Lakeshore Schools did not get snow days because they have a, a donut hole of climate <laughs> where they get the they get the lake effect from Lake Ontario, as well as all the heat coming off of Darlington Nuclear Power Plant. Okay. So they were this this little <laughs> microclimate. And we'd be commuting and halfway down the 115, all of a sudden it was just green. Oh, like, wow. all right, I guess it's not a snow day in <laughs> Bowmanville. So I bet your students love hearing about all the canceled buses up in Peterborough. Oh, Peterborough, <laughs> it's like it's like we're spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. And I love that your science and literacy, that's such a cool combination. It's been fun. It's been fun. That's awesome. And Lori, how about you? My name is Laurie McCleskey, and I'm so happy to be here having this conversation with uh, both of you today. My background is I was an English and history teacher, 9 to 12, for 10 years. And then over the last two years, I've just transitioned into um, being an instructional leadership consultant with our board. And my portfolio is literacy assessment and evaluation and curriculum support. So this whole conversation that we're having and hearing this desire and this need to cover curriculum it's very much a conversation that, that I have with teachers and kind of looking to explore some new ways in which we can engage with that, that is giving ourselves permission to, to do it in different ways. And it's been a treat working with Stu this year because that's such an anomaly to have a science teacher who's the literacy lead because so often the conversation just defaults to literacy as a responsibility of our English teachers. So to have somebody with that perspective that's a different subject, a subject that I am not fluent in, but then to share that literacy component uh, has made for some really cool and insightful conversations. I love that. And you're right. The insight that comes from making those connections um, among the disciplines. So the science perspective, the math perspective, tech, and you and I, Laurie, are both like humanities, the English and history and seeing how um, sort of that can consistent experience and building that continu continuum among the disciplines would help students sort of feel more grounded with whatever skills it is we're, we're trying to um, get them to practice. I mean, I think it also makes literacy not be that like, oh, I have to do literacy because we only ever see it siloed within the context of language-based courses. Um, and so to have sort of that whole school perspective that literacy is for all subjects and for all students and for all teachers, um, I think that gives it more relevance and meaning for, for our students and for the teachers. Right. So are you telling me, Lori, that kids need to read and write in science as well? They do. Is, Stu, <laughs> they Stu, is this true? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm over here. I like that. Obviously, it's a podcast. You can't see me, but I'm just smiling and nodding and smiling <laughs> and nodding. And yeah, it, they do. They have to read in science because it's, it's reading in general, right? Like a lot of people, the kids will come into science class like this is an English class. Yeah, but you're speaking English. Right. So right. all the same rules apply. <laughs> it's funny that we're having to sort of um, break that paradigm, but I love it. And I'm with you. We uh, we recently in our, our uh, school board decided we're not going to use the word literacy anymore. Uh, we're going to use communication skills and in the hope that it sort of um, breaks those associations that limit the skills um, to one discipline or the other, and it becomes more consistent and shared, and and the kids will, I think, benefit from from practicing those skills all day long. 
And let's Definitely. practice it in the context that is not just preparing for the OSSLT. Oh, yes. We don't, we don't say uh, that. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, please. The mm-hmm. test that shall not be named. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Nothing, things don't have to come to a grinding halt <laughs> yes. to prepare for the OSSLT. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've often said um, that if we support these skills uh, throughout the day and, you know, just like real life, we're, we're, we're using our communication skills all day, all day long, um, that then those test scores, you know, should come anyway, just naturally, because the students are used to um, demonstrating those skills. All right. Well, we know that we're we're coming off a year that has not been typical. We've, we've talked about the, the effects of the pandemic and we know we're all exhausted at this point. But um, what we wanted to talk about today was um, how the, the pandemic and, and the challenges of covering a lot of content in a short time have really highlighted um, the benefits of, of supporting skills over content. Um, what do you what experience do you both have with that uh, recently? Do you want to go ahead, Lori, or do you want me to yeah, speak because to the what's, science classroom what's first? Really, what's really ingrained in my mind that, um, and yourself as a classroom teacher, Stu, like you know the conversations that was happening in the building, but when the pandemic first started and we were switching between distance learning and then in-person learning, then virtual learning, and then hybrid learning, like it was just co- this constant um, evolving beast, that's, what a lo- that's where a lot of the tension and anxiety was coming from for teachers, is how am I ever going to cover all this content? when they felt like they weren't having that, you know, for lack of a better word, the quote unquote quality time, you know, in the classroom with their students. And so in, in my meetings with teachers, they were sort of trying to fit what they have always done into this new world that we were living in. And it was almost like they needed to give themselves permission to try something different. And so maybe things don't look how they traditionally would in, in your in-person classroom, but that's okay. And then just having those conversations and slowly working through um, the, the uncertainty that went with that is like, what do you mean I don't have to read three, like I don't have to do three book studies in this class and it's okay to do one because you can still, if that's what we ultimately, ultimately want to do is give our students the skills that they need to go into the next grade, we can build those skills by thoughtfully and meaningfully sitting with that one book instead of worrying about trying to cover, you know, two books in a play within the quadmaster format. Yeah, I agreed, and it, it it was the same in in a science classroom, and I think it was uh, something we wrestled with in in our building. All, all of my colleagues is what's now we're looking at a quality of education versus a quantity of education, um, and the biggest learning curve was when you know the board or 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 our admin were talking about um, you know time in the classroom. So they would say, well, now in the quadmaster system, one day is equivalent to one week with your students. And therefore one week is now equivalent to one month with your students. That spoke to time in front of the teacher. It did not speak to any kind of quality. And um, the big thing was when teachers finally said to themselves, well, I don't even get through a week's worth of curriculum in one week why am I going to try to do it in an entire day? And like Lori said, that, that, that realization, I think gave a lot of teachers the permission to just say, I'm going to try something new. I'm going to try something I've always wanted to try and let's see how it goes. 
And those are such great um, stories and accounts because it, it raises these questions that maybe are good for us to ask ourselves as educators. So Laura, you mentioned, um, you know, we can't do what we've always done. We can't do the two novels in the play. And it almost brings us to the question, why am I doing that in the first place? And um, just, you know, just that natural reflection that, that we do in order to grow as teachers and what are the skills that this is actually supporting? And uh, let's have maybe a, a rethink. And Stu, I love what you were saying too, that um, teachers just, literally couldn't fit in what they normally fit in it it wasn't even possible so they almost had no choice but to take a risk Mm and um and really focus on what was going to bring quality to the program um rather than the the quantity of content And, and again I think that whenever we change it means we are taking a risk but that's okay because how can we grow unless we you know change and and take risks I completely agree. I think one of the most dangerous phrases or idioms in the English language is, well, this is the way we've always done it. But why is that? Like, let's question that and let's reflect on that. And is changing it, does that mean it's a bad thing? And it's also okay. Okay, so we're going to try and change it up. It's also okay to not do well at it the first time you do it. And I think as teachers, we're, we have that type A personality. We want things to be perfect and, yep. <laughs> you know, want to provide um, meaningful and quality experiences. But it's okay if that new thing you tried that first time doesn't go so so good. But the way that we've always done it is also not the excuse to keep doing things the way that we, that have always been done. Right. Stu, you're nodding and smiling. I will just, again, I will say ditto and we can continue. (laughs) (laughs) And also, Lori, stay out of my head. (laughs) Um, And do you think there's any benefit then into trying something and being upfront with the students and saying this might not work? What if it doesn't go smoothly? Do you think there's benefit there as well? I think, yeah, I think if if you are, and I found to... um, the, the day as a teacher, the first day I said, I don't know, as a teacher, it was a very liberating experience. Um, I, I luckily do, I luckily say it less often than, you know, oh yeah, I do know the answer to that or, or something, because I think I also had to realize that just because I'm the teacher doesn't mean I know everything. And being upfront with your students in that and, and being vul- vulnerable in a professional sense with your students and saying this might not work it sets them up to to realize that you know hey let's let's do this let's try this our our teacher is being honest with us and they appreciate that honesty yeah and it also humanizes the teacher as well i think yeah yeah and they'll buy into it they'll try it Mm -hmm. they'll be ready to try it if they're like okay well he or she or, or they may not they, they're not entirely sure how this is going to work. So let's go with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, you're right. It, it does make the teacher more relatable. And I think sometimes if we, we go up and model perfection, now I've never done this, especially not teaching math, but um, it, it might be um, tougher for the kids to connect with perfection. Whereas if we, you know, mm-hmm. model those mm-hmm. normal life um, processes of trying something going through the mess and coming mm-hmm. out the other side with mm-hmm. the learning and the growth. I, I think mm-hmm. for sure kids would be able to relate to that. Mm-hmm. And a little mm-hmm. bit of resiliency too, because even adults don't get it right, you know, the first time and, and that's okay. To be able to have the ability to stand up and try again, I think is something else that's very valuable to model to students. Right. 
So um, I feel like that's definitely one of the things that really matter when we, you know, are thinking about what we want kids to walk away with um, after they experience our course. Um, So when we're talking about quality of learning over content and volume, uh, how do we determine what really matters? Great question. (laughs) Do you want want to have a thanks to or or is it there? Uh, It's there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll uh, thank you. Um, I think in, in terms of science and what as a, as a department, we've really been uh, realizing in science is, is uh, coming away with skills to navigate, um, you know, whether you're going to continue in science after high school or whether you're just going to get your grade nine and 10 credit and get the heck out of there, um, is navigating all the information that is now at your fingertips and being able to vet sources of information. That's a, that's a big thing for us. Um, because they're walking around with all the information in the world in their back pocket. And if they don't know how to use that information properly, so it's, we're, we're shifting towards those, the skill rather than focusing on skills rather than focusing on let's cram this content into your brain. Right. So that's, yeah, from a science point of view, and then that, that ties into our, our, our literacy with, with being, with doing critical literacy and being able to choose the, you know, this is, this is a, this is a trusted source. This is a credible source that I'm getting my information from, not just something that is confirming my bias. Right. And you mentioned before in a conversation, Stu, that, the textbook, when we when we just sort of rely on that as a, a source of information, or the even the teacher, those sources don't require any vetting. So we're not um, giving the kids the opportunity to to develop those skills. Um, and as you say, they can look look this, the information up anytime they want. Yeah, and I think even with the textbooks, like you said, we we we. Uh we have this preconceived idea that the textbook is always correct and it's not right. True. Yeah. You know, like even the, even the answers in the back of the textbook sometimes don't make sense to the teacher. <laughs> I've run into it in science textbooks. I'm sure you've probably run into it in a math textbook where you're just like, that's not the right answer. What is that answer <laughs> doing in the back of the textbook? So, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And Lori, what are your thoughts on, on the, you know, trying to, um, decide and ask that question what is it that really matters Mm -hmm. I think when for when we first started this work um, last year it was really distilling the curriculum down to its big ideas and then connecting those big ideas like Stu was saying to the skills that we want our students to to carry with them into the next grade and that was really what the foundation was for that conversation um, as we went into virtual learning was um, how do I get my textbook how am I going to cover all this content and it was sort of that like let's just back up for a minute what do our, our students ultimately need to know to be successful in future in their future careers uh, in, in um, high school and then post-secondary and kinding, kind of allowing ourselves to move away from getting bogged down in all the minutia of mm-hmm. the curriculum expectations and mm-hmm. saying what are what's the big meat and potatoes that, that our students need to take with them going forward. And you guys have heard me, you folks have heard me say um, in our other conversations that 
it really provided us this opportunity to go a mile deep instead of a mile wide. And that's, and that's not just uh, being fixated on covering as much content as possible, but perhaps maybe at the cost of some of the richness of the learning. Right. And it sounds like um, you're saying almost if the kids can have that experience of going a mile deep with, you know, maybe a smaller amount of content, then they now have the mm -hmm. skills to go go forth and navigate any content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And thinking about what those skill progressions look like in, in coming years, right? And sort of having that big picture mm -hmm. or our wide angle lens on it, as opposed to, you know, getting caught up in, well, in grade nine, we, we always study this. So therefore we should always study this mm -hmm. instead of opening it up a little bit more. And Stu, what would you say, um, you know, to the folks who may be feeling anxious about uh, leaving some of the content out in, in science or math or, um, you know, what would you say to, to ease that fear? <laughs> um, I think if, uh, especially in science, um, and, we, you know, we, we, I know we're going to speak to this, but in, in the content won't change in, in, the, in the time that students are in high school and even from grade nine to their first year of college or first university, um, the general content is not going to change that much. It's not going to change um, to the point where like they have to have, they have to know this before they can know this kind okay. of idea. Um, and, and again, the fact that they're, you know, all this content is with them all the time. I think it's just, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd even ease anyone's anxiety <laughs> that way, but it's just that it's, even our textbooks are, you know, horribly out of date by the time they come into our hands. So if you want, if you want to make sure that you're teaching kids science, then you, you need to be able to say, okay, well, these are the skills we need for science, not the content. Because science is a set of skills, like even with the language of science, you know, teach the kids etymology, get mm -hmm. them, get them, get them building that vocabulary in science. And then when they are navigating, you know, a website or a podcast or an article, they have the, they have that language skill to be able to understand what they're reading and talking about. Oh, I love that. Lori, you must too as a literacy mm -hmm. coordinator. <laughs> yes. And it sounds to me like what I was hearing Stu say is it's almost like we are now teaching the students how to do science, how to do English, as opposed to covering the content. But mm -hmm. how do we be scientists? How do we be um, st study uh, folks who study literature? You know, like how do we do those skills as opposed to, you know, here is text day and, and read right. it and memorize it and you know, do your unit test on right. it. And, and I think just to follow up on what you're saying, the other detriment to, to, to doing that um, with the specific texts is that it's the teacher who's choosing these specifics. Whereas when we teach them how to be a writer or be a scientist, they are doing that in a way that makes sense to them and connecting with the things mm -hmm. that resonate with mm -hmm. them. So mm -hmm. almost, you know, making it their own. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the representation. You know, if we if we are using the sort of the static textbook and it's always the same textbook or or the same novel or whatever it mm -hmm. is, but we have to consider what who is being represented in those choices. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, if they don't see themselves in what they're learning, then it's you know, it's 
I think the biggest the biggest hurdle is do your students see yourself and what you're teach see themselves in what you're teaching them, and if they don't, it doesn't matter how exciting you make it. Right. So. Right. And we, we talk again and again on this podcast about moving away from that one size fits all um, delivery model um, where kids sort of passively sit and absorb everything that we decide they should be absorbing <laughs> um, and, and moving on to uh, a method where they do have that choice and autonomy and, and balancing um, that choice with accountability. So um, I, I really want to talk about both of you have had experience with um, what we've called the thematically structured um, delivery so that um, Stu, you sort of described it when you were talking about science, instead of trying to cover all that content um, and sort of get a, a taste of each unit, you know, like the chemistry, the biology, the astronomy, um, but not go very deep with any of those disciplines. Um, rather you, you, um, sort of show how they're interwoven. And to me, it almost sounded like a spiraling, but um, you have a better way of explaining it. So I'll let you yeah. take off with the, <laughs> with this thematically structured learning. Okay. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, when I was in, in the introduction there, I was, we, about two or three years ago, there were like, you know, three or four snow days in a row and they just ate away at the time. And we were so concerned, like, how are we, how are we going to catch these kids up? How are we going to get through the content? How am I going to get through chemistry and still do space? And I thought, wait a minute, why don't I try themes? And there's themes right in the curriculum, right? There's, there's the, there's the big ideas, there's stewardship and sustainability, there's patterns and cycles, you know, depending on whether you're looking at nine and 10 or you're looking at the senior curriculum for, for biology, chemistry, and physics. And I thought, okay, well, if I can, teach thematically, then I can talk about chemistry, biology, physics, earth and space science, all those things while talking about patterns and cycles or stewardship and sustainability. And then maybe, you know, I, I'm not in front of a class talking to them about chemistry and a student asks me something that's a bit more related to biology but as a teacher who wants to focus on chemistry, I don't want to get off on a tangent because, again, I don't want to lose time and then expect a teenager to remember a question three weeks later that they want to ask me about biology. Um, so looking at that thematic piece, it was, again, I started with patterns and cycles and I thought, OK, what are the patterns and cycles in chemistry and what are the patterns and cycles in biology? What are patterns and cycles in, in physics and what are patterns and cycles in earth and space science? So that the kids then also saw that biology, chemistry, physics, all these things are interconnected because if I teach a biology unit and then give them a unit test and then we move on to the next unit, inevitably they're, they're going to see things as compartmentalized and separate from each other, but they're also going to ask right away, Hey, do I need to keep my notes from the biology unit? So even their actions and their behavior in managing their course materials becomes like, okay, I'm done this. I don't need to know it anymore. I'm going to throw it away. Mm -hmm. oh, um, wow. That's reminding me of the end of the year purge. You know, when they're always like, I don't need this anymore. I'm like, what? That's like exactly. all you're learning. <laughs> this is, this is documentation of what yes. you've learned. 
Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a fun time. It was, it was not easy. And this, I have, <laughs> it was a grade nine applied science class that I was doing this with. They loved it. Um, we got through three of the themes, three of the six themes that I had planned on doing. Um, but that's okay. Cause we just like, we just spent time on stuff and they, I don't think I did a unit test that year, unit test that year either. I did like little culminating activities at the end of each theme for those students. Um, but I also found that I was a lot more relaxed in my planning because the, the with themes, I didn't always have an end point that I was worried about. I didn't always think I have to get here. If we wanted to move on to the next theme, we could move on to the next theme. And I think that that really fosters that spark for um, student desire to learn. Because I was just thinking of, you know, uh, teaching science through the units instead of th instead of themes. And you know, you have to get through your chemistry unit. But a, a students curious about biology, that's almost like quashing their curiosity and their you know their pursuit of knowledge. When because we all have those moments where this is a total tangent, but hey, what about this? And then you kind of go down there and that's just a really organic way to learn, I think. And so I think listening to you speak, Stu, about teaching thematically, it kind of allows for students to explore those connections across science as opposed to, you know, compartmentalizing them within their units. It it was. And and now that like I'm, again, it was a couple, couple years ago, but I'm remembering, I think one of our, one of the labs what, that we did came out of a demonstration where I was extracting DNA from a strawberry. Thank you, Bill Nye for showing that on television. It wasn't, it wasn't anything he, he came up with. It's a, it's a at home extraction mm -hmm. exercise, but anyway, I was extracting DNA from a strawberry and, and the kids were doing it with me. And then they said, one of the kids said, do other fruits have a different amount of DNA than a strawberry? And from there we developed a lab. And they used the same extraction protocol for the strawberry for the other fruit that they had chosen. And they just, it was like a, a visual quantification of the amount of DNA that came out, but they came up with that lab. I wasn't even thinking of doing it any more than once. So, and yeah, it's, it's, the kids can come up with those activities. And then of course you have to assess that. But if you're teaching thematically, your assessment becomes a bit easier as well because you can come up with assessment tasks where the skills are common across all the themes as well, right? Like if you want students to develop critical reading skills, they can do a critical reading piece within each theme. So they can learn how to annotate, they can learn how to summarize, they can learn how to speak to bigger ideas within an article. And you know, the article might change for each theme or, 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 you know, the piece they read might change for each theme, but the skill of critical reading is there. And then they can build on that skill throughout the semester. So you as a teacher are not having to come up with a new assessment task every unit. I'm, I'm just absorbing. This is um, so rich in, in the thinking. And I've been listing as you, both of you have been speaking all the benefits of, of cycling through the themes and, and weaving it in. So the, the first big one that sticks out 
is that it sounds like you were able to go deep into the learning by using the big idea as the anchor and then um, spiraling through and developing that big idea with the different disciplines of biology, chemistry. Um, what's the other ones do? <laughs> oh, physics, physics. Uh, earth, earth and space. Like in right. grade nine, it's, it's electricity in grade 10, it's optics. And okay. Yeah. But again, you get, and you see how like even sort of, ramble a bit here but even like the electricity unit is so can be so big and i know there's science teachers out there are probably going oh gosh the electricity unit because some <laughs> some teachers can make it really interesting and other teachers just struggle with it but if it doesn't have to be a unit if it can be mm -hmm. bits and pieces throughout your year throughout the time of the course it's more accessible for someone who may not be comfortable teaching that particular concept as well and, and let the kids drive it. Maybe maybe you have some students who are really interested in, in electricity. And Lori, you mentioned that this is really um, keeping the kids engaged because they are able to gravitate towards whatever is resonating with them, whatever facet of that big idea. Um, and, and Stu, you gave them the the autonomy to go and explore it with the fruit lab. And, and that's just, it's it's amazing. And at the end of the day, engagement really is one of our our, our um, you know, biggest priorities. Lori, you had some experience um, trying the thematic learning mm -hmm. with um, some humanities courses? Yes, with history, with the grade 10 history course. And, um, you know, I have a passion for history and it, it's, it's one of my teachables, but sometimes the poor history course, it gets taken in grade 10 because they have to, but then nobody wants to pursue history. And so I wonder how much of it is because of our perception that history is just about memorizing dates and it doesn't really feel like it's connected to anything um, that resonates with us because we, or students might see it as something that has all happened in the past. So I worked with a teacher this year and we structured the 2P history course thematically and kind of similar to Stu, sat down with the curriculum. Okay, what are the big themes? I think we had five or six themes that came out of it, but allowing students to to get why it matters, because if we have an entire thematic unit um, uh, within the history course that is looking at how um, resistance and conflict brings about change, suddenly we can start linking together everything, like the suffragette movement that's happened, the um, advancements in LGBTQ2S rights, uh, the Black Lives Matter um, resistance that Students are very aware of that um, because it's contemporary. So start start to link those, like this is not an isolated event in history. So now how do we use the, this resistance and and a call to change and a call to action? How do we, how do we use that in our work for anti-oppression, anti-racism and understanding that this is something that has happened multiple times throughout history and, and not just sitting with that textbook trying to memorize what order things came in and what town did this happen in, but kind of looking at those big themes and, and how those things, uh, those themes bring about change. Wow. That it, that's incredible. And, and it doesn't really, it doesn't get any more relevant than that, Lori, you're um, weaving that theme into the things that they're experiencing in real life today. And um, you mentioned like the interconnectedness of, of history and, and seeing those patterns um, that again, it reflects the real world and, and um, we don't, it's sort of unnatural to study it in compartmentalized mm -hmm, units. Mm -hmm, and Stu, mm -hmm. you'd probably say the same thing. It's um, 
you know, it's much more rich to see how the, um, the disciplines and the concepts are working together rather than separating them because that's just not the way it works in, in nature, I would imagine. No, it doesn't work that way in nature. And, and, and even like I, to, to listen to Lori talk about, uh, a history class and, and we're, I think we, we talked about this, the three of us talked about this in an earlier conversation where, you know, I was put into science classes because I was a hands-on student when I was younger. And if you're not hand like, or you're put into, you know, you should do history in English or you should do the arts. And it was all, again, we, like not only do we put content area into boxes, we're putting students into boxes. Mm-hmm. Right. And my brain just started going. As soon as Lori said history timeline, I immediately started thinking like the Marvel universe and, the timelines and all these other things. It's like in a history class, if you learn those themes and you learn those ideas, a great activity for a a history teacher to do to engage the kids would just be like, Hey, what if call it the, what if activity? And you know, what if this didn't happen in world war two and let the kids explore how the timeline may have been different, you know, and that would, you know, that's inquiry. Inquiry is innate in a science class because we think, let's ask this question and figure out an answer and answer this question. But inquiry can happen no matter, no matter what subject you have. And if you understand those basic themes and concepts, the what if becomes a lot more fun to play with. Whereas, you know, in, in science, you'll get raw data if you ask what if and, and manipulate things. In, in history, it might be a bit more, you know, in history of geography, where you can't necessarily collect raw data, it might be a bit more speculative. But, you know, there are great, and, and this translates to, to English too, there are great writers out there who do speculative stories, like Margaret Atwood has a whole series of what she calls speculative fiction. And, and that's, you know, people love that stuff. And it's, it, I'm hearing again, the, what we keep coming back to is by encouraging that inquiry um, and the student-led choice, like then again, there they are with their agency over what they're learning in the classroom. And it's, it's really become a decentering of the teacher and more of letting students have more control over how and what they're engaging with. For sure. And, yeah. The, the richness of that and, you know, the inquiry-based learning and, not only does it open up the road and the, the students can choose their path and what resonates with them and it, um, it gets back to what matters and that's critical thinking and, you know, um, generating ideas, vetting ideas is, you know, these are skills that they'll take with them in any course and, and life beyond high school. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I love that we're coming back again to um, sort of that letting go a little bit that we can take a risk with as educators and, and moving into uh, the student-led model, which is really uh, coming to the forefront in, in research and education right now. Um, so how would you balance then the, the things that are firm, so our, our, our curriculum expectations with... Um, the needs and interests and experiences of the students that are in front of you. I, I think what that can look like, um, well, too, I think, um, Stu, maybe in science as well, but using those mentor texts, 
because that's allowing students the opportunity to explore with a bit, um, you know, with a bit more free, their own free will of what they, of what, what interests them and what they're keen to learn about. So if you, if I'm thinking about an English classroom and you're anchoring your learning, talking about Amanda, you know, those, those firms, the things that can't change, Mm -hmm. you're anchoring your learning, um, you know, with maybe shorter texts to teach the students the skills, but then the skills can then be practiced by the student through their individual choice. Like if they're going to do a novel study, instead of all 30 students is reading the same novel, now the students are free to explore different genres, different authors, um, fiction and nonfiction or memoirs or, or, or whatnot. You've all done your learning together, those firms, through the through the mentor texts and right. the, yep. uh, building those skills, and then the student gets to transfer those skills and 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 do some of that gradual release. You know, we've done it together as a class. Now practice it on your own, but with a text of their choosing, because that's opening up, you know, different avenues for them to to explore what interests them. Have you had a chance to explore that, Lori, with the mentor texts? We are starting. So within our board, we have five schools who are piloting a de-streamed English class. And so we are currently building that sort of model to try with those five classrooms. Um, You know, knowing that the whole province is doing de-streamed math from September. So we're starting to dip our feet in the water for English. And so we're kind of running off of that model to see what that might look like. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait to hear how that goes. And and Stu, how about you? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say the, the mentor text piece in, um, in science, I, uh, I'm glad I, the, my type A sciencey brain is so glad there's a term for it now, um, <laughs> that I can use. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been to get away from the textbook. Um, thank goodness for podcasts, you know, um, and podcasts just, uh, opening up the door to, again, different perspectives on big scientific concepts and not just, not just like, you know, your average non, maybe non-scientist person, but you can find um, so many different perspectives and you can bring in um, even, even start to talk about social justice issues in a science classroom because of podcasts, because of um, people's blogs, and and because of, like different articles you can find. So again, we get we go back to that piece where um, students we can make it even easier for students to see themselves in what we what we are teaching. Um, yeah, it's it's been so again maybe not a I, I, again not so much me grabbing a certain novel for science, but like Lori said too, something that's smaller, a bit more digestible in a, in a shorter period of time and letting students listen to it a few times, think about it. And then, you know, at the end of the week, we all come together and talk about it. So, and I would also like to put a shout out to all English teachers who have done small group discussions with their students because it makes it that much easier as a science teacher to try it in their classroom (laughs) because the students, the students are experts at it. And, uh, I have, I have thoroughly enjoyed the small group discussions that I've gotten to have with my students this year. So thank you, English teachers for doing that. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. 
Well, and, and there's, I'm going to back that up with some science too. I, I just learned this this year, but if we want to really, um, for kids to consolidate their learning, the best thing we can do, and Stu, you've talked about both of these things. One is, um, is uh, build the foundation of vocabulary needed to have the conversations. And two is have the oral conversations. And so those are our top two moves we can do before we get kids to read and write about anything. And um, Lori, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because I'm wondering if, about the term mentor text. Speaking of unpacking vocabulary, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where does that word mentor text come from? Well, now you're going to put me on the spot because I don't know. <laughs> Liberating words. Liberating words. <laughs> it's okay not to be the expert, right? We, we establish that. Yeah. So, so I always conceptualize it just in that I don't know, you know, who was the original person who coined that term or, you know, what the thinking that came out of it. Okay. But just like if we think of what a mentor is like in real life, that person who is sort of guiding you or helping you to understand. And so you have all of these smaller texts that are leveraging or supporting sort of the bigger texts that the, that the students are digesting. Okay. No, that, Mm -hmm. and now that makes sense. You Mm -hmm. explained that beautifully. Yeah. I love that. Um, and so what were we going to go? I know we talked about, um, oh, I know the, uh, the role of collaboration. So, um, we talked about the mentor text and I'll just sort of, um, consolidate what you said, Stu, in science, sometimes I I know when I studied science, you didn't really have any choice of how the information was represented. It was, here's your lecture and here's your textbook, but all the different um, mediums you've described um, were really, uh, it's the universal design for learning with multiple means of representation. They can access the learning through uh, an article, through a conversation, through podcasts, videos, blogs, textbooks, all these different ways, which um, really gives the kids choice and, and maybe puts them in the driver's seat a little bit uh, on, you know, their own, their own learning path. I wish I had had that as a student. (laughs) Well, I think, I think it's, it's, uh, it's definitely recognizing um, what, what is available and what their, what students are exposed to all the time. Um, and, and yeah, the, the letting go of that textbook, um, while it is, it's going to be a tough thing for a lot of teachers to do because they're laid out so nicely relative to the curriculum. And that's a, that's a whole other discussion. Um, but, uh, I think also it's just, it's, I'm learning now that representation in education is important and the textbook's do not represent all of the students we have in the classroom. And I think a lot of people, when they hear scientists, they think of, I think the picture that jumps into their head is either Albert Einstein or Charles Darwin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those, those two individuals did a lot for, for the world of science, but there's, you know, there's women who have done a lot for the world of science. There are people of color who have done a lot for the world of science. There are indigenous people who have done a lot for the world of science there are LGBTQ people who have done a lot for the world of science. Like science is not just a bunch of old white guys. Right. And so to bring my little tangent back to the role of collaboration, (laughs) um, if students see themselves in what they're learning, they're, they're more engaged and they feel empowered to express their ideas and their, 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 their opinions on something. And 
that's what makes collaboration collaboration. There has to be a level of discourse in collaboration. Otherwise it's group work. Mm -hmm. It's not collaboration. It's just a bunch of people sitting around in a circle and getting work done. Um, but there has to be, there has to be a bit of friction in collaboration to get the best result. So, right. And the different perspectives and backgrounds and experiences, um, can, can provide that friction. I'm sure like, what about this or what about that? And, and yeah. you're right. It, it's, it's so, um, limiting to only see that one perspective of science and we know we all grew up with it and the, even the book rooms in in the English department were full mm -hmm. of the works of old white guys and mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's so nice to be recognizing <laughs> that naming it and mm -hmm. and moving on from it and Lori how about in your experience do you um do you have any um things you could share with us about how we create that culture in the, in the classroom so that kids mm -hmm. feel safe to um, mm -hmm. express their experience mm -hmm. and their interests. Mm -hmm. I have this like theory that um, like, it's just, you know, my musings, but you know, you know, the um, stereotype of a student goes home from school to their adult and the adult says, you know, what'd you do in school today? And the student says nothing. Yeah. And, but I, but I think they say nothing because because of exactly what Stu was just talking about, that they don't see themselves represented, they don't see the relevance to what they're learning to their life, that the learning is very much contained within those four walls. It doesn't transfer with them when they leave the building. Mm -hmm. So by making more mindful text choices, pedagogical choices, how do we include more lived experience, more, di more diversity in our text choices, um, you know, that's good for all the students in the classroom, but it's also creating that safe space mm -hmm. where everybody feels like that they, that um, their ideas are valid, that their experience is valid, that their interests are valid. And um, so uh, speaking to your comment about um, English class, the, the text, uh, text rooms, um, we're making a mindful choice of that, of getting rid of, of Mockingbird and making sure that we have, you know, we've curated a list of more authentic voices and, mm -hmm. and more texts with authors writing about their lived experience as opposed to, um, you, you know, some of the more antiquated texts that seem to have taken up residence in, in our um, book rooms. Mm -hmm. And I just go back to that question again of just because that's the way we always did it, why does that make it the best way? And so, and it's not about censoring anything or banning anything, but just about well, could we try something different? Like, what is the hurt in trying something mm -hmm. different? And especially when it's good for kids, because now kids are reading about things that connect with them. So when they go home to their adult, maybe they'll say, hey, I'm reading this really cool book, or we did this really cool lab in, in science, as opposed to we didn't do anything today. Right. And, and just coming back full circle in our conversation, we started talking about um, what matters and what could matter more than than kids feeling safe, feeling valued, and... Um, you know, seeing themselves represented and just improving the student experience. I can't think of anything that matters more than that. Uh -huh. All right. Well, we've come to the, that part of the show where I'm going to ask you for one small thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Stu, if you want to start us off, if you could, um, you know, just someone who's new to, to thinking about um, skills and what matters versus, you know, the volume of content, What's something that you would maybe tell them to try? Um, I would say um, maybe maybe look at and and as again as a science teacher, uh, there's probably 
more than one lesson that I would have had. And there's still more than one lesson that I have that is planned down to the millisecond, Mm -hmm. you know, that activity where I have to manage these 75 minutes, you know, down to the last second. And I, I would say like, look at, look at a day, look at that lesson and, you know, um, take a risk with that lesson. Um, cause you're comfortable with it already. Right. And, and it's prescribed for you and that's fine, but it doesn't have to be prescribed for the students. You can take the beginning part, say it's the beginning part of that lesson and here's an open-ended question and let the students explore it and see where they go and take that risk. Tell the students you're doing that. Cause again, we talked about that vulnerability and the authenticity that lets them buy into it again a bit more, sorry, but um, see, see what happens with that. Because if, it, if you've already got that plan down to the nanosecond, then I think you as an individual, that, that relieves some of your anxiousness, right? You can have a plan and it's easier to deviate from something that's planned than deviating from nothing. So see if, see if there's an activity that you know, you're willing to maybe just let go of for 75 minutes and see where the students go. That's great advice. Just start small and, and see where it yeah. takes you. That's wonderful. Yep. Thanks, Stu. And Lori, how about you? What could you leave us with? One small thing. I think it piggy, piggybacks off of what Stu was saying is that, and I know as teachers, we like to have our tangibles and our takeaways. <laughs> like we like to go to that PD and like, yes, I actually have something to take away. So I'm probably going to irritate some people by not doing that and being a bit more abstract. But I, I think myself being new to this role, new to this role during a pandemic and then trying to support teachers during this time, I think my, my one small thing is just to be kind to yourself and allow yourself to make mistakes. And so, it, and it says, sort of what Stu was saying, you know, tr- try something that's going a little bit off script. And then if it doesn't work out, that's okay. And, be, and that's, that's the human side of teaching, that's modeling vulnerability. And, and it's, and it's a valuable learning experience for, okay, how can I do this a little bit better next time then if, if the wheels fall off and it doesn't work as we had hoped. And it models life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And we're Things, going to need to be, sorry, go ahead, Stu. It just, it just shows that nothing will ever go as planned. Right. We've really learned that in the last year and a half. And I, I was just going to say. Over and over again. <laughs> we're going to probably want to model that kindness and, and flexibility in the fall when we're coming back to, you know, we're not sure exactly where everyone's going to be. So I think that, Lori, that leaves us with with some great advice that we can take into the next year for sure. I want to thank you both so much for being here. It is the end of June. <laughs> in a pandemic year so thank you for this rich conversation and i'm wishing you a wonderful uh summer thank you i've been really pleased to be a part of this conversation so thanks for sharing your thinking both uh Stu and amanda thanks yeah same same back this is and this is one of those things where you get that you get that little boost of energy at the end of the year and you're you know "Ah, i'm still excited about teaching (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) That's what it's all about. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much. And uh, maybe this isn't the last conversation we'll have. I look forward to more. Sounds good. Take care. Take care.